Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, welcome back, y'all. This is Denise at Murderous Roots, and with me... Hi, I'm Zelda, again. Hello. (laughs) And if you're looking for a true crime podcast that's a little different from the rest, you have come to the right place. Because we're definitely a little different. (laughs) I'm not talking about you and me, Zelda. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I'm talking about the, the podcast, because we get into the history of the people, their family history, their... All that good stuff. So, and today we have a guest with us. Wait, we've got company? I didn't bake a cake. (laughs) Well, that's probably good because she's not in your state. Oh, so yeah, I guess it'd be hard to like serve it. Okay. Yeah. So who do, who have we got? What's going on? Who is this person? It's a mystery. This this person is your friend. I (gasps) was hoping you would introduce. Well, I mean, she's become my friend too and she's fabulous, but you know her best. Well, I am super excited to introduce my friend, Bobby. And Bobby, just share a little bit with our listeners about yourself and why you're interested in today's podcast. Oh, well, I am interested in genealogy. I've been doing genealogy since I was 16 years old. And yeah. (laughs) And then I also have that interest for, you know, looking at serial killers and trying to decipher why and how and and seeing if there's anything, you know, in the background, whether it's family or otherwise, that, you know, shows mm-hmm. why this happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Looking yeah. for those clues. I always like to be a detective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, how have you been lately, Zelda? What's up Actually, with you? I've had just a banner couple of weeks. So things are great over here. I had friends from Arizona coming to visit and they stayed for a week. And the husband, who is just such a sweetheart, um, hates to be like left idle. He's one of those people that needs to be busy. Mm-hmm. So he went through my house fixing things, just like little things like, oh, well, this just needs a tighten of a screwdriver or, hey, I can put this shelf together and things like that. So my house looks way better now since they've come through it. And then I love those type of people. Oh, yeah. So fun. And my friend Lori is this master quilter. And so we had mm-hmm. all the quilt shops in town. And then I remembered that, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be making a baby quilt because my niece and goddaughter is now having a baby. So and my mom was always the quilter in the family who made the baby quilts. And so I'm like, well, the, the girl, the well, I think they're having a little boy. The boy needs a baby blanket. So Anyway, I got to get that pulled that together. So it's been a lot of fun. How about you? Um, It's been an interesting week. I was just t- telling y'all about this, but I'll, I'll mention it to everybody else. But I was diagnosed with severe deficiency of vitamin D. So now I know I've been tired all the time. Yeah. And that's not a euphemism. It's the actual vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a euphemism? Yeah, it's considered euphemism? a euphemism in some quarters. I did not know that. I'm going to so. Google that. I'm not sure I want to know what that means. Um, but yeah, so it's actually kicked in. I took the first pill for it because I was given a prescription. It's that low. I took it two nights ago and I'm already feeling a difference. And I'm just wondering how it's going to feel when I feel normal. Like how long have I been suffering this? 
mm-hmm. because I'm realizing I think I've suffered from mm-hmm. this for a couple of years now and I did mm-hmm. not know. It just got really bad more recently. Yeah. So I'm so glad you're on top of that though. Uh, yeah, me too. Well, I'm glad I have a I call her my doctor and technically she is a doctor. She's um, a nurse <laughs> practitioner with a doctorate. But I am so grateful for her. I love her. And she just, she listens. She's one of those doctors or those health professionals that really listen. And she's like, she looks at me and she goes, when was the last time you were in here for, you know, your blood work? And I'm like, um, two years. And she goes, oh, that's not good. We got to do that. She goes, and you know what? Let's check your vitamin D too. <laughs> and she was spot on. She oh, knew. Good. I think that's why she was testing it. And she just knew because of certain things I was struggling with and I had told her about. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you. My doctor does my vitamin D and then vitamin B12 and a couple other things. Oh, yeah. So, anyhow, I'm excited because this means I have more energy. It's not going to take as much effort and energy to try to do the trees for this podcast. And I was always falling asleep as I try to edit. Uh I'm thinking that might be part of the reason. Oh, yeah, for sure. I thought it was just because it was tedious. It explains so much. My children need to watch out. I think there's something about middle age where you're just like, I'm just tired. And that's, this is part of my personality. Now. Yeah. You know, because there's just like so and much happening sleep- at any given time. I, I don't sleep well because I'm in that perimenopause time of life where I'm waking up with night sweats or I can't go to sleep because my head, all sorts of things. I don't sleep very well. So I thought that was all to do with perimenopause and it turns out there was more going on because the last couple nights I've slept pretty good. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. And I'm waking up more refreshed than I have, which is very exciting. That's awesome. So, and that's just two days. So I can't wait to see what happens next. And watch out, world. We're going to be coming at you like double time now. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, your girls aren't going to know what to do with you. (laughs) No, because the house is about to get a major upheaval. It's going to get cleaned up because it's driving me. The mess has been driving me crazy. I just haven't had the energy to deal with it. And Mm -hmm. now I'm finding the energy and it's not going to be fun for them. That is awesome. So how about you, Bobby? Anything going on in your world? No, just we survived the Arctic cold you guys sent us. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) That was cold. And, you know, going to campus and having the wind just just go through your clothes as like okay how fast can i get into the building you know that that was hard <laughs> yeah it's like the snow's okay but it's the cold yeah. that really does yeah, yeah. we got we received some really nice yeah. snow with it thank goodness you know it's really hard to deal with the arctic cold when you have no snow so at least we had the snow to go with it for a reason mm-hmm. you know but yeah just getting onto campus yeah. and, and getting into my building <laughs> Well, I'm excited about this episode today. I don't know why. I just am. Maybe it's because I was, um, I lived in Kansas. Mm-hmm. So I heard about him back at the day, but nobody knew who he was at the time. Today, we are talking about the BTK killer, Dennis Lynn Raider. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And what do you have for us, Miss Zelda? Well, I just have to say, like, you guys have been to Wichita, right? Both of you, Bobby, Denise. No. Bobby Mm -hmm. hasn't. You guys haven't. Okay, well, it doesn't really seem like a town where a whole lot happens. I'll be honest with you. 
But like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of. I have friends from town. Wichita. Just but been. what was interesting to me is when I started doing some of the research on how the BTK killer came to be and that sort of thing. Um, there was actually quite a few different kinds of crimes happening in Wichita around the same time. There was another mm-hmm. serial killer that was going on, um, and I went and looked at their unsolved cases list from that time. There's like. There was just a lot of killing happening in Wichita, and I'm kind of like, was something in the water? But (laughs) on this particular thing that we're talking about, from 1974 to 1991, there were killings of 10 people on seven separate occasions. And they were so brutal that the killer was called the BTK killer and the BTK strangler, meaning bind, torture, and kill, which, by the way, was a nickname the killer gave himself. Oh, I forgot about that detail. So Wichita was terrified and obviously rightly so. The first set of murders killed four members of a family who were discovered by their three oldest children they got home from school that day. And the rest of the victims were all women ages 21 to 62. Now, the real name of the BTK killer was not known until January 2005. And that was because basically he ratted himself out. So... As Denise shared earlier, the real name of the BTK killer was Dennis Rader, and it is a crazy story. He was born on March 9th, 1945 to Dorothea May Rader, maiden name cook, and William Elvin Rader, one of four sons. Now, Dennis' brother's names, he has three brothers, Paul, Bill, and Jeff. And Mm -hmm. all the indications are that the Rader family was pretty damn normal. Loving Mm -hmm. parents. There wasn't really any abuse, according to the siblings who were not serial killers. Now, Dennis Rader, however, was not a normal kid. Did hide it well, though. But -hmm. from a young age, Rader, after he was captured, harbored, shared that as a child, he harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing trapped and helpless women. He also participated in zoosadism, which is killing animals by torturing, killing and hanging small animals, particularly cats. He also acted out sexual fetishes for voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation and cross-dressing. He often spied on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing, including women's underwear that he had stolen and, Mm. you know, worked out these things with ropes and other bindings around his arms and neck. And then years later, during his cooling off periods between murders, Raider would take pictures of himself wearing women's clothes in a female mask while bound. He later admitted that he was pretending to be his victims as part of a sexual fantasy. However, as we said, he kept these really well hidden, even from his own family, and was widely regarded in his community as normal, polite, and well-mannered. So he tried out college after high school, but due to poor grades, dropped out. He served in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970, and while he was there, he achieved the rank of Staff Sergeant, achieved a Good Conduct Medal, and received the Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon. Which I find interesting, because although he threatened his victims with a gun in order to gain control of them, he did not kill any of his victims with with a gun. They were all, like, strangled or suffocated. Uh, I was going to say, I believe there was one that was shot. He survived. He survived. He actually like surprised them. He wasn't supposed to be there mm-hmm. um, with that particular one. So he shot him in order to escape. But it wasn't a part of the original plan to shoot the brother of the woman who had gotten murdered. But yeah, 
So yeah, I think it's I, I think shooting was too quick. It wouldn't have satisfied his fantasies. No, he was all about drawing out the crazy stuff in his head. So after he was done with the military, his mom got him a job in the meat department of their grocery store where she worked as a bookkeeper, which I find really kind of chilling when you think about it. Um, He then married Paula Deitz on May 22nd, 1971, and they had two children, Carrie and Brian. He attended Butler County Community College in El Dorado, earning an associate's degree in electronics in 1973. He then enrolled at Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor's of Science degree, majoring in Administration of Justice. So after he graduated, he actually had a career where he jumped around a bit. Um, He originally worked as an assembler for the Coleman Company, which who doesn't love Coleman stoves, right? You know, when you're Mm -hmm. out camping. And then he worked at the Wichita-based office of ADT Security Services. From 1974 to 1988, 14 years, this man installed security alarms as part of his job, many times for homeowners who were getting this because they were concerned about the BTK killer. And I'm just like, that's just nuts. Um, He did go through a period of unemployment and became a census field operations supervisor in 1989 before the 1990 federal census. And then in May 1991, Raider became a dog catcher and compliance officer in Park City. Now, he was known for having a temper at work. He had grievances filed against him multiple times at work for stuff that we would now consider sexual harassment of a downline staff member. He even Mm -hmm. once like kind of trapped her in his office and until she started yelling, wouldn't let her out. So, I mean, he just, so there were these little clues for some of these situations. He was really fastidious about holding other people to the rules. He was known to report people for having their grass one inch too high. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Oh, Um, he's like the nightmare of HOAs. Oh yeah, absolutely a control freak. But he didn't seem to exhibit that among his friends and family. And it wasn't, you know, and it was towards certain people at work who then were actually weren't really believed. And so those grievances were never followed up on. He also uh, became a member of the Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita and had been elected president of the church council. He was a Cub Scout leader who was known for his proficiency in knots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, he was just what they call a pillar of the community. He grew up a Boy Scout, too. Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. So BTK stood out among murderers for a kind of bizarre reason. He craved attention so badly, he would send confessional notes. Mm -hmm. So on January 15th, 1974, the four members of the Otero family were found murdered when their three older kids came home from school. The BTK killer wrote a confessional note about it and hid it in an engineering book at the public library. That letter was discovered in October of that year and brought to the attention of the local newspaper, the then Wichita Eagle Beacon. And it includes details from the scene that only the killer could have known. On April 4th, 1974, so before the letter in the library was discovered, Catherine Bright was found stabbed to death in her home. Her brother is shot, but survives. He is not able to give much of a description of who the person was who killed his sister. And then things got quiet for a few years. But, of course, on March 17th, 1977, Shirley Ruth Vian Relford was discovered murdered in her home. I dug into that a little bit because something kind of was like, it mentioned something about her eight-year-old son who was also supposed to be murdered. Okay, so this jerk, this crazy man... The little boy who was five, her son who was five, she Mm -hmm. had two sons and a daughter. The five-year-old was outside 
The BTK killer approaches him, shows him a picture of a man and a little, uh, a woman and a little kid and says, do you know these folks? And he says, no, I don't. And goes back inside the house. A few minutes later, he comes knocking at the door. The little boy opens the door. The BTK killer comes right on in. His mother comes out of the bedroom door. He flashes the gun, murders the woman in front of her children. And he was originally going to murder the children, but a phone call interrupted it and he just took off. And those kids were messed up for life. They've had a couple of, of follow-up article, newspaper articles about them, but it's just like, holy moly. And I'm going to spare you the details because it's just God awful. But yeah, um, I would be pretty messed up too if I had watched that happen to my mother. So then December 8th, 1977, Nancy Fox was found tied up and strangled. And this time, the BTK calls it into 911. So his voice is actually captured on tape. On January 31st, 1978, a poem written with a child's printing set on an index card arrives at the Wichita Eagle Beacon. The poem, patterned after the Curly Locks nursery rhyme, references the Vian Bralford murder. So they're getting all of this evidence. They cannot figure out who this person is. February 10th, another le- in 1978, another letter to the television station KAKE in Wichita was sent claiming responsibility for the murders of the Oteros, Bright, and the Vivian Relford and Fox. He suggested many possible names for himself, including the one that stuck, which was BTK. This time he demanded media attention and it was finally announced that Wichita did indeed have a serial killer at large. A poem was enclosed titled, Oh Death to Nancy, a parody of the lyrics of the American folk song, Oh Death. In the letter, he claimed to be driven to kill by Factor X, which he characterized as a supernatural element that also motivated Jack the Ripper, the Son of Sam, and the Hillside Strangler murderers. Moving along a little bit, the next year, April 29th, 1979, The BTK killer hides inside the home of Anna Williams, then becomes impatient and leaves when she's just too late coming home from visiting friends. He also mentions for that. Yes, seriously. And he mentions there were several times with other people that he didn't end up murdering that um, something happened that interfered. Like one woman, he was hiding in her house, but there were too many construction workers around working on the house down the street. There were just too many witnesses. So then he ended Mm -hmm. up not killing her. A few years go by, and then on April 27th, 1985, Dennis Rader's neighbor, Marine Hedge, goes missing, and her body is found on May 5th, 1985. She had been killed on April 27th, and the BTK killer took her dead body to his church, Christ Lutheran Church, where he was president of the church council. There, he photographed her body in various bondage positions. Rader had previously stored black plastic sheets and other materials at the church in preparation for the murder and then later dumped the body in a remote ditch. He had called his plan Project Cookie. So he called all of his plans for various murders projects Mm -hmm. and had many, many more projects planned than murders. So Project Cookie, though, sounds like he was begging to be caught. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it. Well, I think at the point, especially in 2004, he really wanted to be caught. Because oh, yeah. he was playing yeah. Captain Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain amount of mm-hmm. arrogance about it. It's like, you guys well, are yeah. never going to catch me no matter how many leads I give you, you know? Well, he is a narcissist. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah, there is that. Like he, the one that got me was he liked listening to Nancy's piano playing. So his project for her was Project Piano. And I'm like, I mean, it's just so crazy and sick. It's ugh. 
So, and of course, like I mentioned, he had many, many more projects planned than he had murders committed. He would stalk people for quite a while before he would attempt the murder. On September 16th, 1986, Vicki Lynn Wagerly was found strangled by a nylon stocking. In 1988, after the murders of three members of the Fager family in Wichita, a letter was received by the Fager mother who had, who was not killed. Obviously she was the one who discovered her family killed from someone claiming to be the BTK killer in which the author of the letter denied being the perpetrator of the Fager murders. The author credited the killer with having done admirable work, quote unquote. It was not proven until 2005 that this letter was in fact written by Raider and he is not considered by police to have committed the crime. The Fager family murders are still unsolved. Now, What's interesting is one of the reasons they say that he probably didn't do it is that he would have claimed it mm-hmm. because he wanted to mm-hmm. be known for the work he was doing. And and that's probably why he sent the letter. There was probably talk that was BTK and he wanted to make sure they mm-hmm. knew it was not him. Yep, exactly. Exactly. On January 19th, 1991, Dolores Davis is abducted from her home and her body is found on February 1st, 1991. The case goes cold. Over two decades later, the Wichita Eagle publishes a story on the 30-year anniversary of the Otero killings. And then, then stuff starts to move fast. So starting in March with a letter to the Wichita Eagle with a photocopy of one of the victim's driver's licenses and three photos taken by the killer, a series of letters and packages begin to arrive at the KAKE TV station, the local newspapers, and three packages found in different places around the city. In January 2005, Raider attempted to leave a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita, but the box was discarded by the truck's owner. It was later retrieved from the trash after Raider asked what had become of it in a later message. Surveillance tape of the parking lot from that date revealed a distant figure driving a black Jeep Cherokee, leaving the box in the pickup. In February 2005, more postcards were sent to KAKE, and another cereal box left at a rural location was found to contain another bound doll. Now, I'm not going into details about what's in these packages and what's right. in these letters, because it's just so gross. Yeah. But um, y- it's easily it available if you online. Know. Yeah, if you want to know, Google it. In his letters to police, Raider asked if his writings, if put on a floppy disk, could be traced or not. The police answered his question in a newspaper ad posted in the Wichita Eagle saying it would be safe to use the disc. On February 16th, 2005, Raiders sent a purple 1.1, oh God, this is great, purple 1.44 megabyte Memorex floppy disk. <laughs> Remember that? Remember those that days? That was like megabytes? a lot of space that back was, then. Yeah, he paid money for that. Oh my God. Uh, to Fox affiliate KSAS TV in Wichita. Also enclosed were a letter, a gold-colored necklace with a large medallion, and a photocopy of the cover of Rules of Prey, a 1989 novel by John Sanford about a serial I love that killer. Book. Sorry. You read that book? I read the whole series. I oh, love is it. it good? Yeah, it's very good. Just so you know. But the why why I think that's significant is um the character the main character is Lucas Davenport. He's a Minneapolis police detective. Mm-hmm. And he's going after a serial killer but what john sanford did a little different at the time than you saw most books like that is there were chapters where you saw it all from the serial killer's perspective oh wow wow yeah so you would he got in the head of the serial killer wow so that's my guess why that book would have been sent with him interesting 
Hmm. Well, as police are wont to do in order to catch potential uh, potential serial killers, they had lied to him and they found metadata <laughs> embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was unknown to Raider because apparently had no techie skills whatsoever, was still <laughs> stored on the floppy disk. And the metadata contained the words Christ Lutheran Church and the document was marked as last modified by Dennis. Yeah, not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree after all. An internet search determined that a Dennis Raider was president of the church council. When investigators drove by Raider's house, a black Jeep Cherokee, the type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage, was parked outside. This was strong circumstantial evidence against Raider, but they needed more direct evidence to detain him. So what did they do? They went to DNA. They obtained a warrant to test a pap smear taken from Raider's daughter at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. DNA tests showed a familial match between the pap smear and the sample from Wagerly's fingernails. This indicated that the killer was closely related to Raider's daughter and combined with other evidence was enough for police to arrest Raider. So... They arrested him while he was driving near his home in Park City shortly after noon on my mom's birthday. Oh, my God. February 25th, 2005. An officer asked, Mr. Raider, do you know why you're going downtown? Raider replied, oh, I have suspicions. Why? Wichita Police, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the FBI and ATF agents searched Raider's home and vehicle, seizing evidence including computer equipment, a pair of black pantyhose retrieved from a shed, and a cylindrical container. The church he attended, his office at City Hall, and the main branch of the Park City Library were also searched. At a press conference the next morning, Wichita Police Chief Norman Williams announced, The bottom line, BTK is arrested. And there was great rejoicing throughout the land. (laughs) There was. (laughs) On February 28, 2005, Raider was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. On March 1st, Raider's bail was set at $10 million dollars. And a public defender was appointed to represent him. As an aside, the public defender assigned to him is the same public defender that defended the only suspect in the Faber murders in 1988. (laughs) And he was found not guilty. I just find that interesting. Hmm. Anyway, on May 3rd, the judge entered not guilty pleas on Raider's behalf as Raider did not speak at his arraignment. However, on June 27th, the scheduled trial date, Raider changed his plea to guilty. He described the murders in detail and made no apologies. He was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. Kansas had no death penalty at the time for murder. And on August 19th of that year, he was moved to the El Dorado Correctional Facility where he has been in solitary confinement ever since. And that is the overview of the BTK killer. I, I will say, I think DNA was the way to go. There's just part of it that disturbs me that they went after her pap kit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is it just me that feels like that's why couldn't they follow him and get him dropping something? Or maybe he was too smart and they had to go to different means. I don't know. Yeah, it, they, Honestly, they never said why that was their their approach to get that DNA yeah. instead of yeah, like getting a cocaine or whatever. And as as you know, as cunning as he was in all of his moves until those very last ones, you know, it may be that that's the way they needed to do it. Yeah. But I, I know, I, I just feel for his daughter mm-hmm. feeling oh, yeah. like she was somehow violated. Well, and, and she wasn't only violated 
that way, but also violated mm -hmm. when all of this opened up and you right. know, it was laid out for the public to see. Right. Exactly. So th that was just one of those things that I'm like, whoa, at the time when I read it, was yeah. I didn't catch that part. I caught, you know, early on. I mean, I caught it when we were getting ready for this episode, but oh, he got caught by DNA. Great. Yeah. It wasn't until, you know, we're getting ready. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> well, and I do kind of wonder what the laws were at the time that in theory they could have held him and gotten a warrant for like a blood test or something. I mean, on this, on the evidence that they had. Right. So I'm wondering why they decided to go the circum, you know, the circumvent that route and go through the, through his daughter's DNA. So, but I'm assuming that's the way they felt that was the only way to do it. I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. So. Well, and that aspect of if they tipped him off, would he flee? Right. So if they go through the aspect of getting the pap smear and getting the DNA that way, DNA didn't come yeah. back as fast as it does now. I mean, you sent it off and you had to wait. Right. So nowadays you can yeah. go in and you can have a rush on some of it. But back back in 2005, that this is something new. You know, this was something that they were just generating. That's true. I, I guess it was first used around the late 80s. Um, for a crime thing, but the speed didn't really pick up until the recent last five to ten e five years, I would say. Oh, yeah. And even then, it still cool. can take a while. My dog is losing it. Oreo, you shush. Okay, sorry. Who else was kind of surprised that they did a computer search to discover he was president of the church in 2004? I thought that was Because, neat. you know, I thought that was very neat. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, yeah, we did this internet search. And I'm like, that was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and in 2004 when not everybody had a website mm -hmm. you know i'm like no. that's pretty cool yeah and so like the stories he read you know the story series that you read and that he obviously read and you know he studied other serial killers and you can see that when he talks in his um i don't want to say his confession when he's talking at his sentencing and the guilty mm -hmm. i mean he spent 46 minutes detailing what he did for the judge mm -hmm. and even correcting the judge. If the judge got something wrong, he's correcting him. You know, you can see where he studied other serial killers and, you know, was very arrogant about it. So the arrogance is probably part of his downfall, mm -hmm. but arrogance and the need for recognition yeah. because he was intelligent. Mm -hmm. He might have done great at school the first time, but he was smart. Uh, you know, and, and looking at the time frame of everything is, you know, you see him earning his degree. So for four years while he's doing these killings, he's earning an administration of justice degree. You know, and mm -hmm. I wonder how much of that played into what he was doing because he was killing at that time. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, there's so many strange correlations. I mean, mm -hmm. not obviously it's not causation, but one of the mm -hmm. things I noticed was that a number of the killings happened on Catholic feast days. And I was like, that's kind of strange. Like one was St. Patrick's day. One was um, Immaculate Conception. I mean, things that are kind of fairly well known and other ones didn't. So there's not like, there was obviously no causation there whatsoever, but it just kind of was a little weird to me. And then of course there were the large gaps mm -hmm. in between when he would commit murders, which is actually pretty unusual for a serial killer. And one of the things that it prompted the police to do 
was to start looking around in other states for other crimes that were sort of similar to the kind of crimes he was committing, but he was never linked to any other murders. And police just said, nope, it was these 10 that he did. And so I'm fascinated by, you know, the two decades in which he did no murders whatsoever. And then prompted by the 30th anniversary news story, he he wanted people to remember who he was and started doing all those Mm -hmm. letters and stuff. But like, okay, so for two decades, he felt no need to kill anybody. What was different? You know, like it just it's crazy to me. Well, one decade, though, it was just one 14 years or 13 years between killings on that last one. 1991 was his last. Oh yeah, I totally like got the di- got the math wrong. But he on did. That. He had large gaps. I mean, from 1977 to 1985, I mean that's mm-hmm. eight years. Mm-hmm. The 1986 to 1991, another five years. Mm-hmm. I so I mean it's not that he didn't have large gaps. It's just it wasn't quite two decades. I was surprised that his first kill was four people. That surprised me right. for that, yeah. that first one out that, you know, killers you usually do. And I kept thinking, there's got to be something before that. And then I started reading about it and what, you know, the detective said and what he said is he actually went for Julia and mm-hmm. her two kids were there and her husband was there. So it ended up being the four of them. If I mean, he expected just her to be there, the kids to be at school, the husband right. to be at work. And so that was so unplanned. And he went off the cuff on everything. It, it, I was so surprised about that. Well, and it was his first murder. Mm-hmm. So he probably planned a little better. And I think that's why he was so quick with the next one, um, which was three months later, was because he didn't get satisfaction with that first one like he was hoping. Or running off the adrenaline of what that was. Yeah. That first one. Yeah. Because then it's like three years before mm-hmm. he comes back out again. But he kept, yeah. if I remember right, Zelda, he kept sending stuff to the newspaper and kept getting that interest in him, you know, mm-hmm. and just playing cat and mouse. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't like a large number of things that he sent, but he would send things periodic. Just kind of yeah. like, don't forget, don't forget about me. And then nothing mm-hmm. between 1991 and 2004. I mean, that's the part that I just am like, I don't know. I, it just, it blows my mind because usually people who have that impulse. Mm-hmm have that impulse all the time, you know, and it's, you know, excited and then relaxed for a little while, but it doesn't take long for it to revive itself. And the other thing that happened that I thought was interesting is because of all the mistakes he made at his first murder, that's when he developed his kill kit afterwards, Mm -hmm. because before then he was always, he would, the first two murders, he just kind of used whatever was on hand at the house. And then he realized that's not a very good way to go about things. So yeah, yeah. Um, they learn and they develop and they get better. Well, and like, you know, his his first, I want to say four, but the first one had four in it. So there's like seven. The first seven murders all happened in the same place and he left their bodies there. Where in 1985, when he killed Miss um, Hedge, you know, he took her body somewhere else, you know, and disposed of her body somewhere else. And that was, you know, he took a taxi to her house, which was, mm-hmm. you know, out of the ordinary for him and then he took her body in her car somewhere else it was mm-hmm. it was very odd to I, somewhere else's because he yeah. took her to the church first yeah and then dumped her body in, yeah. a, in a ditch well and i think it maybe that's because she was a neighbor mm-hmm. so then he's like oh i kind of liked that so then after that it's like okay let's do that again mm-hmm. yeah you changed that whole mo up yeah 
Well, I'm going to get started here, but before I do, I need to say the following. Um, not only was Dennis Rader a mess <laughs> in general, but his family tree was a mess. Um, well, at least his paternal line was. And having to sort through this line of the family and Bobby took a quick look at his family tree as well, gave me lots of headaches and frustrations. But you'll also now understand why I start this with the much easier maternal line. Um, like Zelda said, Dennis Lynn Raider's father was William Elvin Raider and his wife, Dorothea May Cook. William was born in the small town of Madison, Kansas, 21 miles south of Emporia in November 1922. His family would move a few times until they eventually settled in Pleasant View, Kansas, in Cherokee County. Cherokee County sits along the border with Missouri in the southeast corner of the state, and William would attend and graduate from Cherokee County Community High School in 1940. And it was there that he would meet his high school sweetheart, Dorothea May Cook, three years his junior. Now, after World War II started, William signed up for the draft, as he was had to do. <laughs> from this, I learned that he was six foot one and 180 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. Then in February 1943, William enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. Now Dorothea is a senior in high school and she makes her way on a train to San Diego in the middle of the school year and married William in San Diego, California in April 1943. William would serve in the Marines until his discharge in March 17th, 1946. Huh. Sorry, March 17th is one of the dates. Yeah. Right. It just hit. Okay. So according to his granddaughter, William would serve in the South Pacific repairing B-25 bombers. He did get a brief shore leave. And then nine months later, the couple had their firstborn son, Dennis Lynn Raider. Aw. In 1945. Mm-hmm. They would have the three more sons that Zelda mentioned, Paul, Bill, and Jeff. All four would be active in Boy Scouts. Jeff, the youngest, would speak to the press after Dennis was arrested, at first denying that his brother could have anything to do with the case, and then later discussing their life at home, explaining there was no abuse and there was nothing that could explain why Dennis did what he did. I won't get too much into the brothers, because I believe they're all alive still, but they did seem close. At least at one time, I even found something that shook me a bit. I'm not sure you can handle this, Zelda and Bobby. Are you ready? Okay. I found mention in the Wichita Beacon of a local music group called the Riverside Boys. In May 1974, just five to six weeks after the murder of Catherine Bright, the group would be playing at a gospel music convention. The mention had a picture of the group and list of all the members of the group. In this group was Bill Rader, his older brother, and he was the lead singer and lead guitar as well as Dennis Rader playing drums. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Now keep in mind, this is May 1974. It's just a little bit after killing Catherine. Oh my God. Now, as far as I can tell, the group hadn't been performing all that long at that point. And I don't see much mention of them after 1977, but they did play pretty consistently in churches for youth groups and all of that. For at least three years. Oh my gosh. Wow. And then when he became a student at Wichita State University, he played drums there as well with the Madrigal Singers. Wow. Keeping up the appearances. Yep. As Zelda also mentioned, Dennis and his wife Paula had two children. The son would be in Boy Scouts like his father was. And I believe that's part of the reason his father was a Boy Scout leader. 
His daughter, Carrie Rader Rawson, has given interviews since her father's arrest and appeared on American Munster. That's a show that's on investigation discovery. She wrote a book published in 2019, A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. I'm going to put a link to that on the website. And I did read a sample of it, and there's an audio sample you can listen to, and it's really good, and I'm going to have to buy that soon. Go ahead. Interrupt for just a minute. On that book, um, at the time, she was actually talking to her father, and I I was reading where she had an interview, and she broke off the talks with her father because he was, like, signing over her signature on stuff and on the book. Oh, yeah, he was doing some very weird things, and she just... Mm-hmm. stopped it was like time to stop yeah wow. and that's hard yeah I really do feel for the family members mm-hmm. um, Paula I believe got an emergency divorce like mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. after he was arrested it went through like a month after he was sentenced yeah yeah so I mean it just it really affects oh yeah everybody yeah William and Dorothea would be married more than 50 years they even have a 50th wedding anniversary picture in the newspaper in 1993 William died a couple days after Christmas in 1996 he never knew what his son Dennis had done but his mother would learn about it with the rest of the world and she died two years later at the age of 82 wow now let's talk about Dorothea Cook Dennis Rader's mother's family. And Dorothea was likely a happy surprise for her parents. She was the youngest of three with her closest sibling, a sister seven years older. The oldest was a brother, Weyburn Charles Cook, born in 1916 in Columbus, Kansas, which is in Cherokee County. And a lot of their families, um, the Cooks and the Raiders, were in Cherokee for a time. In February 1938, Weyburn enlisted in the U.S. Navy at the age of 22. Once the U.S. entered World War II, Weyburn would serve in the South Pacific, where he was a naval pilot. And I found this article about Weyburn and the Wichita Eagle on September 24th, 1944. Wichita aids and rescue of flyers in South Pacific. Ensign Weyburn C. Cook, former North High School student, recently took part in the rescue of seven Army aviators who had crashed into the sea in St. George's Channel between enemy-held New Britain and Duke of York Islands in the South Pacific. The seven Army flyers had survived the crash after their plane had been crippled by anti-aircraft fire in a morning raid and were drifting on a life raft under heavy enemy fire when Ensign Cook, pilot of a Navy Catalina flying boat, located their position. He set the large plane down skillfully, picked up the seven survivors, and returned them to a Navy base. Ensign Cook is now on leave visiting relatives in Columbus, Kansas. He will report to Shawnee, Oklahoma at the end of his 30-day leave. And he reported to Shawnee, Oklahoma to help teach flying um, to Navy pilots. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. And I believe this is where he would remain for the rest of the war. And then later that same year, so this is, um, again, 1944, he would marry his hometown sweetheart, Cecile Heinrichsmeyer. And Weyburn remained in the Navy for several more years with his final discharge in March 1950. And I found another lovely article on Weyburn that I'll share on the website. Um, It was from 1966, describing how he flew a glider in Oswego, Oswego, Kansas, a glider that he built and took two years to build. I'll just share that there instead of reading that because we got lots of stuff to talk about. (laughs) Okay. Dorothea's older sister, Dennis's aunt, was Corrine June. 
What caught my attention with her was a marriage that seemed a little out of place. I'll explain. She married who I suppose was a high school sweetheart, Emmett Sutherland. But they married in Missouri instead of their hometown of Columbus. Not only that, but the town they married in was 55 to 70 miles away. And the closest town in Missouri from them in Columbus is only 16 miles away. Hmm. So why would they go so far? So that makes me think that this couple eloped. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell their family. They went and eloped. And this was in March 1938. My, my instinct was correct because seven months later, Corrine gave birth to Dennis's first cousin. There you go. And she was 20 when they got married. So they weren't particularly super young. They were just mm -hmm. young. Active. Yeah. But like a lot of those types of marriages that start so quick, um, it didn't last. Mm -hmm. Ending around 1943, which is my best guess, given the, um, there's a 1943 Kansas County census. Mm -hmm. They had them still living as a family. But in January 1944, they were no longer married. And I know this because Emmett had enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And in May 1944, he married a girl from Parsons, Kansas. That was not his wife. <laughs> and her name was Lola Allen, a woman he would remain married to until his death in 1985. In 1945, I found Kareen still unmarried and living with their son um, in Kansas. But she would eventually remarry and move to Texas. Although, I don't know what happened first. Did she get married and then move to Texas or move to Texas and get married? I don't know. But I would imagine if she had stayed in the county, things might have been a little uncomfortable. Because her ex-husband returned after the war um, in 1946 and became the undersheriff of their county. Oh, wow. And we have a postmaster alert. Oh, yay. That's my favorite. Corrine's ex-husband, Emmett Sutherland, was made the acting postmaster in October 1957 in Parsons, Kansas. Nice! And then a regular appointment starting in March 1958. That's very cool. He must have been a very good man. He probably was. It just wasn't meant to be between him and his ex. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dennis's grandparents were Lyle Weyburn Cook and Carrie Hannah Downs, both born in the early 1890s in Kansas. They married in 1915 and remained together until the death of Lyle in 1982. The only thing I did note about them as a couple was that they seemed to struggle a bit financially during the Great Depression. But didn't most people? Mm -hmm. So that isn't to say I didn't find anything interesting in this tree, though. I was able to trace the Cooks back to William Cook III, born in 1770 in Halifax, Virginia, hmm. who married a Catherine. William and Catherine were Dennis's fourth great-grandparents, and he descends from their son, Isaac Cook, born in 1800 in Shelby County, Kentucky. Oh. So Isaac married Nancy Sackry and had nine children, one of which was Seth Cook. By the time they had Seth, the family had left Kentucky and settled in Indiana. And according to his obituary, his birth around 1829 had historical significance. Oh, tell us more. It said Seth Cook, father of Grant Cook, died at the latter's residence, this city, on Monday night at age 76 years. The funeral services were held on Tuesday and the remains shipped to the old home at Hepler for burial. He was the first white child born in Clinton, Indiana. Hmm. He had been blind for a year before his death. 
interesting. Well, I mean, it was Native American land. I was going to say. Before, you know. Huh. That's what I was yeah. thinking that meant. Is that... The, so, and, and it's hard to take because it means, okay, so are we proud that we're the first one? Or is it just a statement of fact? Um, I think there was a little bit of pride in that. Probably. Yeah. Back at that time. Yeah. Not not that we care, we care for the pride, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's just interesting how our worldview changes. Because now we look at that and go, mm. it's It's interesting you bring that up. I saw Meet Me in St. Louis today because I haven't watched it in a mm-hmm. while and I love Judy Garland. And I had forgotten how much casual racism happens in all of these early movies. Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a song and dance number that I'm like going, holy crap. And I was like, I don't remember seeing that before. And I'm like, you know, it's entirely possible that scene was cut out when they put it on television. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, but now seeing it, the whole thing on, you know, prime video, it was like, oh, oh my, wow. So yeah, thank God times yeah. have changed. Yeah. Seth Cook married Sarah Reed, daughter of Robert Reed and Jane Davison on October 14th, 1852 in Clinton County, Indiana. They would have two sons, Wayburn and Ulysses S. Grant Cook oh, in nice. Lafayette, Indiana. That's nice. Yeah. I wonder why he got that name, but only Grant, is, but he only went by Grant. So, but, and he was the only one to make it past the age of one. Mm. Seth had an interesting occupation, which really caught my attention. And it was listed in the census as Huckster. Uh-huh. Was he a salesman? Now when, what? Well, yeah. So when I think of a Huckster, I think of the, bad connotations you know Mm -hmm. like the hucksters like the snake oil salesmen although i find that unlikely that somebody's going to sit there and put on the census that they're a huckster if they know it's not viewed positively you would change it to something like salesman or peddler or something (laughs) but it was a peddler but they usually had some showy tactics at times and but what it was is they he would have a wagon filled with goods to sell or buy from farmers. And it turns out, I, I found this lovely article describing what huckster wagons and how important they were to the farming community. And I'll, I'll post a link on the website. But they really did play a big role in getting the farmers their goods and taking their farmers' goods to market. So, you know, it was a, I learned a little bit there. <laughs> Just because of the word huckster. That, that's now, interesting. You know, Seth's son, Grant or Ulysses S. Grant, was born in 1864. Hence why I said, I wonder how he got his name. And I think we know. This family was obviously supportive of the Union during the Civil War. Now, Grant married twice. His first wife was Alcira Bell Bunton. They married in March 1885 and had their first of two sons in May 1885. So do the math. I see Zelda going, huh, wait. Uh, yeah, I, two months later. I don't do math today. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've obviously not been successful thus far. So, okay. Elsira died two years later, um, either at the time she gave birth to their second child or soon after. Mm. Then he left with his family sometime around 1888 for Columbus, Kansas. Once in Kansas, Grant married Emma Josephine Tankery, a young woman also from Lafayette, Indiana. And they got married in 1889. Hmm. Emma and Grant would have nine children of their own. Their first child being Lyle Cook, 
grandfather of Dennis. I see Bobby going, this family is just so huge. <laughs> yeah. Every family gets bigger, though. We're not done. I know. Oh I looked into this and I'm like, this, this, these are big farming families. <laughs> they were. You gave birth to your labor force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emma. Emma Tankery was the daughter of the Justice of the Peace for Cherokee County, Levi Sadler Tankery, and his wife, Mary Elizabeth Goldsberry. Emma was their third child, and her family arrived in Columbus in 1882, which was actually noted on one of her parents. I think it was on her father's obituary. It was like, he and his family came in 1882. Her parents suffered a lot of loss with children, just like the Cooks did. They had 11 children, but only five made it to adulthood. Mm. And even then, their oldest daughter, Lulu, died at the age of 25, leaving her three daughters without a mother. And in some ways, without a father. Now, I think he was around. I don't know all the details involved with it. But Lulu's daughters lived with her grandparents. They lived with their grandparents after their mother's death. So it was Levi and Mary who raised them. They also lost their son, Fred, at the age of 31, unexpectedly. The headline is, Fred Tankery dies suddenly, drops dead of heart disease in Cherokee Hotel. And it's like four headlines. Laughing moment before. Fred Tankery dropped dead in the Linden Hotel at Cherokee last night, arriving in Cherokee on a train, which reached there at something after seven o'clock. He ran all the way from the station to the hotel because it was raining hard at the time. His uncle, L.D. Jones, who runs the hotel, was not in the office at the time, and Tankery engaged in conversation with his son, or, you know, um, Fred's cousin, Everett Jones. Tankery had come from Edna, where the two men have relatives. Tankery had answered Jones' inquiries about them, and they started talking over other subjects. Tankery was evidently in the best of spirits and was chatting and laughing. He rose from his chair and started to walk over to a table for something. Then he reeled and fell to the floor. He never regained consciousness and in a few moments, in a few moments, he was dead. It is thought that Tankery had a weak heart and the exertion of the long run from the station to the hotel through the rain overtaxed it, resulting in his death. They, I mean, their, their children just, they, they weren't having the best of luck. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then in October 1913, sad news was sent from Ohio to Kansas about Levi. He was visiting family and attending a reunion of his Civil War regiment when he was struck with paralysis. The news sent home was that he would likely die in the next 24 hours. He didn't. Um, he actually lived, but he had to live with the paralysis until his death on January 10th, 1916 in Columbus, Kansas. Wow. Now I mentioned that he had been in the Civil War. He had enlisted as a private in Company C of the 10th Indiana Infantry at the time his regiment was formed on September 18th, 1861. He would serve full he would serve 3 full years mustering out in September 1864. Now when it mentioned a reunion I have seen that a couple times, but I've never really looked into it. So this time I did. We usually talk, you know, when we talk about the Civil War, we always talk about what battles they fought in. Rarely do we get into what happened after. I mean, there's some of it was touched on, I think, even in the Civil War um, 
movie or I don't even know, series by Ken Burns. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, it's kind of like a lot of soldiers. They go through this experience and they don't have anybody at home. They can share it with them mm-hmm. that understand. So they would reach out to each other and they would hold these reunions. They would hold parades on Memorial Day with their regiment. Um, the reunion started almost immediately after the Civil War came to an end, and a lot of them were n- announced in the newspapers. There was a lot of letter writing between, you know, um, friends to let them know that, hey, I know you moved to Kansas, but we're having a reunion here in Indiana. Come, you know. And newspapers also at that time would memorialize veterans as they died. Um, you know, like... Here's a list of everybody who's died this past year who served for our state. So that was something I did not know at the time. And I have more on that coming. Before coming to Kansas, much less Indiana, Levi Tankery was born in Pickaway County, Ohio, to another Levi, Levi V. Tankery and Ann Brown English in 1839. And he was the third of five brothers. As far as I can gather, because I I didn't do all this research on my own. It was one of those quick, dirty, let's look at somebody who's done a tree and has some documentation, but (laughs) I'm not sure I trust it. The family originated in France. Mm. And with the first immigrant ancestor being David Tankery, born around 1687 in Normandy. But he didn't immigrate to the colonies. No, he went to London with his wife, Catherine Hammond, where they had a son, at least one, um, Abraham. And Abraham, with his wife in London, would cross the Atlantic to come to the colonies. And David Tankery, the one born around 1687, would have been, would be the BTK seventh great grandfather. Now, the Goldsberry family, I wasn't able to go as far back on, partly due to time constraints. Mm-hmm. Mary was the youngest child born to Joseph Goldsberry and Phoebe Ann Brown. Both Joseph and Phoebe were born and raised in Ross County, Ohio. After they married in 1829, they left to settle in Lafayette, Indiana. But tragedy would strike the couple in 1855 with the death of Joseph at the age of 45. Young Mary was without a father at the age of eight. Phoebe remarried Joseph Cooley just seven months later. She had children. (laughs) And as we've talked about before on the show, for women back then, it you needed to have that man in your life to help support you and your children. Uh Phoebe was 43, Joseph 65. Marrying an older man does come with risk and their marriage would only last six and a half years when Cooley died in 1863. Wow. Yeah. Phoebe never remarried again. And at this point, her oldest children were in their twenties and she lived with them. A quick note, though, I was able to trace Phoebe's family back to their first immigrant, Thomas Somerset, born in 1754 in London, Mm -hmm. and he was also a revolutionary patriot. Oh, nice. Thank you, (laughs) D-A-R. I I thought it was quite interesting that there were several links back to the Revolutionary War Mm -hmm. on on this tree. There is. there's, There's quite a few. And... It's, I think it's pretty easy to document if they wanted to be a member of the DAR or the SAR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's okay. so much documentation there. Dennis's maternal grandmother, 
Carrie Hannah Downs was the daughter of Charles Downs and Mary Stevens, both from Chemung, Illinois. Charles was the grandson of Dr. David Downs and Mary Bangs from Ancrum, New York. A fact I learned in a profile of Carrie's granduncle, David Downs, in a book covering the history of McHenry County, Illinois. And I was able to confirm this fact when I found David Downs Sr. in Ancrum in the 1820 census. But David Sr. died before the 1830 census. David and Mary had several children, including two sons, David and Joshua, who left New York and found themselves in McHenry County, Illinois. The first to arrive was Carrie's grandfather, Joshua, who came to Illinois before 1840. His brother David would follow in 1846. It's likely in Illinois that Joshua married Irish immigrant Mary Clellan, 13 years his junior. The couple would have seven children. Huh. God bless her. Including, yeah, lots of kids, including twins, Iona and Edwin. Thanks, Dave. Charles was their fifth child, born in 1846. On September 15, 1864, Charles was conscripted into the war, serving in Company C of the 95th Illinois Infantry. And much like Levi, he wanted to connect with veterans after the war ended, and he would become an active member of the GAR the Grand Army of the Republic. Now, today, as you guys know, we have veterans organizations like Disabled Vets, um, AMVETS, which stands for American Veterans, the VFW, Veteran of Foreign Wars, American Legion, and so on and so forth. But there really wasn't anything like that at that time after the Civil War. And so the GAR formed and it was founded with Union Civil War Veterans. And it was founded in 1866, not far from when I, where I live, in Springfield, Illinois. Nice. Yeah, and they had local posts across the country, mainly in the north, although there were some in the south. It was the first veteran advocacy group. It supported voting rights for black veterans, promoted patriotic education, helped create Memorial Day. In fact, the head of the GAR in 1868 said, this is Memorial Day, it's May 30th, and we're going to, this is our holiday. That's basically. Awesome. They would lobby Congress for pensions and better pensions. And they also supported Republican political candidates, the, the party of Lincoln at the time. Mm-hmm. It's not the same party as today. In 1890, they had 410,000 members. Wow. Yeah. The GAR did come to an end at the death of their last member in 1956. At the age of 106, Albert Henry Wilson, who was a drummer boy in the 1st Minnesota Heavy Artillery Regiment. Wow. And Charles became an active member in the Kansas chapter of the Grand Army of the Republic. And the Kansas chapter would host encampments. Their first one was in 1882 and the last in 1943. Okay. Several years after the Civil War ended, Charles married Mary Stevens in 1872. She was the daughter of Jonas George Stevens and Mary M. Bennett, both from Vermont. And let me tell you a little bit about Mary and Jonas. Jonas was born in Jericho, Vermont in 1819. He was the son of a revolutionary patriot. There's like our third or fourth now. In 1841, he married Maria Burns. They had two sons. Then in 1852, Maria died with their sons being three and four at the time. Jonas married again, this time to Mary Bennett, just 
five months later in September 1852, probably because he had those young children. And soon after, the couple would leave Vermont for Illinois. And they were there by 1854 when Mary Ann Stevens was born. They would have two more daughters, Elsie and Carrie. Then the Civil War happens. August 1862, Jonas enlisted in the same unit that Charles Downs would serve two years down the road. So Mary Ann Stevens' father served in the unit that her husband served in. Her future husband. But not at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) But Jonas would not make it home. He died on March 23, 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee. Not in battle, but of chronic diarrhea. Oh, God. Did he have cholera or something? I believe I saw a mention of typhoid pneumonia. Oh, God love him. Yeah. Mary, needing to take care of her family, applied for and received a widow's pension by 1864. But in November 1865, it was revoked because she she remarried to a man by the name of David Cole. Mary then applied for the minor's pension for her daughters and one of Jonas's sons, who was still eligible at the time. And the children and the minor's pensions were only eligible until they turned 16. Now, I know now why organizations like the Grand Army of the Republic fought so hard for pensions, because they were not easy to get, especially not for the wives or the widows, I should say, and the minors, because... So they would take statements from everybody. Do you have proof that they were married? We want to see proof. And this is at a time, so the listeners understand, when marriage records were not required, they were not laws saying that there had to be a marriage record. You could just get married and say you were married. You know, you would have to turn to the church sometimes Mm -hmm. just to get that record. Um, So this was not an easy process. So Mary went through this process and she hired an attorney to help her all to receive $2 a month per child. Wow. I mean, it's not a ton of money, but it's enough to help that family at the time. Mm -hmm. And this process took years. They finally were approved for the minor's pension. So they started the application process in early 1866. They were approved in February 1870. Just five minutes before Mary Stevens would be cut off from the money. Oh, my God. And a couple years after her brother was already, her half-brother was cut off. And I know all this because I went through all 44 plus pages of the pension application. Wow. You should get an award for that. It had good information. It had birth dates. It had everything. We're giving you the very first Murderous Roots Gold Star Award. (laughs) And I keep thinking the federal government has not changed in their (laughs) favor. In many ways, they haven't. And I have another story like this, but we're not going to talk about it today. But it was another situation where it took years to get. Yeah. Just. Wow. Yeah. So now we get to finish with the paternal line, the Raider side of Dennis's family. And when I say it was a mess earlier, I wasn't <laughs> kidding. Bobby, can you contest to that? I can attest, attest to, that. to that. I mean, yes, I can. Attest I, I said to contest, that. but that was wrong. Okay. This is not a tree. This is a trunk. <laughs> Yes, I like that. Okay. So, oh god, that's funny. We need to remember. So, that I'm that. going to approach this one a little differently than I normally do. I'm going to give you the history of the Raider family. The Raider family originated, as far as I can find, with Johann Adam Raider. I think it's pronounced Raider, but it was spelled differently. It was spelled R O E D E R, and his wife Anna Katerina Tauber. 
both born around 1670 in Bern, Switzerland, although they would move to Rhineland-Pfalz, Germany, a few years after they were married. Their sons, Hans Adam and Johann Michael, would cross the Atlantic for a colonial America in the mid-1750s. I think that was the time they came over. Hans and Johann would go to Pennsylvania at the beginning, but Hans would leave and settle in Rockingham, Virginia, where he died in 1773. And it's likely that these two raider men, these Hans and Johann Michael, are related to a large portion of the raider population in the United States today, although certainly not all. In fact, in my town where I live, we have raider family farms, which is famous for their pumpkin patch. Well, guess what? They descend from Hans Adam Raider, making them very distant cousin to Dennis Lynn Raider. Should I tell him? <laughs> no, let it be a surprise. <laughs> yeah. I Maybe mean, I should tag and go, you might want to listen to this episode. Your family comes up. <laughs> um, the descendants of Johann Michael would settle in Greene County, Tennessee by 1794. Now, Greene County is in the northeastern part of the state along the border of North Carolina and to the northeast of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Oh, and it was also the birthplace of Davy Crockett. Hmm. But he was gone by the time they were there. So there you go. They're there for a long time, actually. And they even set up a town there called Raider. In 1871, brothers Joseph and Andrew Raider decided to go west. They loaded up their families and headed for Missouri. More specifically, looking for the Ozarks. Oh, God. <laughs> have you been there <laughs> yes actually i have it's beautiful yes it's There's very other... pretty yes in webster county they found the home they were looking for and webster county is to the the county to the east of springfield missouri and they created their own town called raider alongside the osage fork gasconade river and the brothers would even set up a church for their families the raider emmanuel lutheran church a church that exists to this day, despite the town, well, being fairly empty. But people still go and attend the church. And there was even, I'm going to post an article on it, a whole feature on this church from a local news station. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, the Raider family established the first post office in town, hence how it got named Raider. Although not all Raiders made their way at that time, Joseph and Andrew had other brothers and sisters who were still in Greene County, one of them being Eli Raider, father of William Darius. And William and his wife, Melinda Elizabeth Renner, were Dennis's great-grandparents. Both William and Melinda were born in Greene County, Tennessee, and married there in 1883. They wouldn't come to Raider, Missouri until 1894 with six of their children, including Dennis's grandfather, Reuben Simeon Raider. Once in Missouri, they would have an additional eight children. Oh my gosh bringing them to a grand total of 14. And this brings me to another postmaster alert. I'm very excited and concerned for that mother's health. <laughs> so you're excited, but you're concerned. So you don't know how to react to the postmaster alert. Don't know what to alert. do. <laughs> it's a little traumatic, is... you know. Like, <laughs> that poor woman. I mean, oh my God. Like, I'm surprised she didn't make him sleep in the barn. Like, uh, <laughs> maybe she did and that's why they had 14 and not yeah. 18 <laughs> don't yeah he's near her <laughs> exactly like don't share a towel you know okay so Dennis's great-grandfather William Darius Raider or Uncle Bill as he was called in Raider Missouri 
was a postmaster there starting July 1st, 1895. Now, this is where things get a bit confusing because the Raiders um, intermarried a lot. You see, William Darius wasn't just Dennis Raider's great-grandfather. He was also his double first cousin three times removed and his third cousin four times removed. Wow. You want to know how? <laughs> I'm, I'm scared is, to ask, but yes. And is this endogamy or just pedigree collapse or a combination thereof? What do you think, Bobby? I think the pedigree collapsed. Yeah, probably. So I'm going to explain what those terms are so people understand. From Wikipedia, (laughs) sometimes it's better to go a place that explains it for you so you can just write it. So hopefully I didn't copy too much. Um, From Wikipedia, endogamy is the practice of marrying within a certain social group. And it sometimes happens when a group is isolated from others. So like Ashkenazi's Jews are an endogamous group. And I gave an example on our last episode with my family in Crawford County, Missouri. Um, it was endogamous. It was an isolated small community with not as much around. The families would move in sometimes, but people usually didn't leave either. Mm-hmm. And intermarriage happened. But in most cases, it didn't seem to be intentional. Like it, it was like you go through your training like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. that's a cousin. I don't think they necessarily knew. Yeah, and and for me on on one of the trees that I do on my in in my trees that I do for my children, their dad's side mm-hmm. in small town, you know, Arizona, they mar- there is two large families, and they married to keep the land together. So their children mm-hmm. married children, and so we have lots of extra cousins in there. <laughs> now with pedigree collapse. It means that the family doesn't have as many has does not have as many unique ancestors as most families. Most people have 32 distinct third great grandparents. With pedigree collapse, that's not the case. You're going to have a lot less. A good example of pedigree collapse is in the royal families. And if you look at pedigree collapse on Wikipedia, they actually have a couple graphics. And the one that really explains it the best, I think, is Cleopatra's, but also the Habsburgs. And another good example might just be the Raider family. Well, and I was looking at that. And by the third, by Dennis's third great grandparents, we have eight common. Mm -hmm. By his fourth, we're at 10. His fifth, we're at 27. By the sixth, we're at 49, and it just keeps multiplying back on the line. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I'm going to try to explain this as best I can with his family, and wish me luck. So, I, here we go. I feel you can do this. I believe in you. I wrote it out so I could, but we'll see how this goes. So, Dennis Raider's father was William Elvin, and he was the son of Reuben Simeon. And Reuben Simeon Raider's wife was Dorothea Martha Raider. That was her maiden name. Reuben and Dorothea were double second cousins through their great grandparents, Andrew Jacob Raider and Catherine Peters, as well as great grandparents, Adam Neese and Catherine Bowers. But wait, there's more. They were also double fourth cousins once removed, both, both through <laughs> Johannes Adam Rush, and his wife, Susanna Sailors. And last but not least, because I'm not done, they were also fifth cousins via Louis Zirkel and Maria Bear. This means that their own children were their cousins as well, and their children were cousins of each other. 
Can you process so that? So they're family trees. <laughs> it was a trunk. It was it, it, a yeah. trunk. It, it was missing a lot of branches, yes. Wow. It had some, but not much. Yeah. Now, how did this come to be? Are they the only ones in the family this convoluted? The answer to that is no. But I'll do what I can to guide you guys through this genealogical mess. We'll start with Andrew Jacob Rader, who was born to Peter Rader. Peter was the grandson of Johann Michael. Around 1817, Andrew married Catherine or Katie Peters. She was the daughter of Abraham Peters and Christina Zirkel. And this is where the problems began. So it wasn't just the Raiders. You see, Christina was the granddaughter of two immigrant families, Johanna Zirkel or Lewis and his wife, Maria Bear, and Johanna's Adam Rush and his wife, Susanna Saylor. I feel like I should have like a map for everybody to see this. I might have to do this on the website. You have to get a score. All card. of them. Yeah. All of them were from Germany and like the Raiders, they settled in Greene County, Tennessee. So can we just blame Tennessee for this? <laughs> Doesn't it really, isn't it really more of an Ozark issue? Uh, no, Tennessee and Virginia. Yeah. Ah. Now the Russians had two daughters and we're going to focus on them. Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene Rush. And the Zirkles had two children that we'll pay attention to in the story. Margaret Zirkel and Lewis Harper Zirkel. Now, Margaret Zirkel married German immigrant Michael Nace Jr. And they had a son, Johannes or John. Is Bobby taking notes? I feel Bobby's taking notes. I feel like she's looking she at the writing tree. Them she, she's writing she, she has it. <laughs> I'm a good study. I'm a good study here. You're so good. Eliz now, Elizabeth Rush married John Nace. Their son, Adam, would marry Katie Bowers. And they had two daughters, Barbara and Ma Mary Magdalene. I, I, I feel I'm losing listeners right now. It's so confusing. Seriously, get out paper. It's easier to understand. <laughs> now, Margaret Zirkel's brother married Mary Magdalene Rush's sister, ah. Elizabeth. That happens. Make, mm -hmm. Yeah. Making Adam niece his nephew and Adam's daughter, Mary Magdalene, his grandniece. It's important to have that there. Now, Mary Magdalene niece, so the grandniece of Louis Zirkel, married Eli Rader. Eli was the son of Andrew Jacob Rader and his wife, Katie Peters. Now, remember, Katie was a Zirkel and a Rush. This means that Eli and Mary Magdalene were second cousins once removed, as well as third cousins. Eli and Mary Magdalene were the parents of William Darius Rader. But we aren't done, because this is Reuben Simeon's line. And grandfather of the BTK. Let's connect things with his wife, his cousin, Dorothea Rader. You see, Dorothea's father, Simeon, was the son of Joseph Rader and Barbara Niece. Now, Barbara Niece was the sister of Mary Magdalene Niece Raider, the one who was married to Eli. So basically, two brothers married two sisters. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those sisters and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they had a close family. The, yeah. So <laughs> both Eli and Reuben are our brothers married sisters. Those sisters and brother, and there was already in a, a cousin issue already inter in there. Mm -hmm. But those sisters and brothers would have great grandchildren who would marry each other. And then, yeah, it just ends up in just, there's not a lot of branches. And not everyone married cousins 
but those aren't the only cousins that I saw marry each other. So this isn't isolated to Dennis Rader's tree, but it does make me question things about him. Hmm. So we know what the, the result of incest can have on DNA long term. And pedigree collapse and even endogamy can end up when you're doing DNA tests and you're looking for a DNA relative, it will screw things up. It, it makes it hard to know because there's a lot more DNA in somebody who's like a double cousin, your relationship than in others. So like a double first cousin will have about as much DNA as a half sibling, for example. Wow. And that's a double first cousin. I mean, the further back you go, the less impact the DNA has. But when you have that much, I just have to wonder if that might explain a few things. Because it wouldn't be one of those dominant traits. It wouldn't happen to everybody. But I do wonder if that DNA could affect somebody. You mean that perhaps it's somewhere in the bloodline, there's sociopathic killer gene? and No, no, no. Just that the, just like with incest could bring problems physically to a baby deformities maybe it could also bring mental issues to somebody in the family line it's just a question but there's not much research on pedigree collapse and the resulting kids well and and along that same thing is you have all of these war veterans from you know the revolutionary the civil war and world war one and world Mm -hmm. war two and along that same line the ptsd that comes with it yeah. And they're finding that that can even be passed down generations. Yeah. Family trauma gets passed down. Mm-hmm. They're, they're learning. So you have all these elements going into it. And it doesn't mean everybody in your family is going to be affected by oh, it, no. but it could just be the one. Mm-hmm. And it could have nothing to do with Dennis Rader and what he did. Mm-hmm. But it just it's enough for me to question if that might have something mm-hmm. played a role in this to some degree. Yeah. And Out of all of the family that's the doubles and quadruple cousins, it seems like he's the only one that had this tendency, or Mm -hmm. at least has come to light that has had this tendency. So, you know, you have to question that, you know, and and he stressed Mm -hmm. so much when he was arrested that, you know, he had this really angry issue with his mother that she neglected him, you know. Because she went to work and there was no time for, you know, and that was the reason that he became this. But her family is the only one that doesn't have the double cousins. And I'm like, you know, it's like, okay, she she's probably, you know, the best one out of that, that she didn't bring any of this into it. Right. I mean, she, her family was the most average. Yeah. <laughs> because this family was so large and interconnected, anytime I stumbled on a story involving a Raider surname in the newspapers... I would have to look into it. Sometimes the last name didn't have to be a Raider, but so I do have a few crazy cousin stories to share or two. And we're going to start with the death of William Price. And I'll let you know how they're related in this. And these are distant relations, but these are good stories. So William L. Price was born in January 1856 in Jennings, Indiana. In 1878, he married Sarah Elizabeth Harlan, the great-granddaughter of Peter Rader. And Peter Rader is the fourth great-grandfather to Dennis Rader. So this makes Sarah and Dennis first cousins four times removed. Sarah and William married in August 1878. William started as a farmer, but was elected as county sheriff in 1897. And after he was elected county sheriff, the family left their smaller community in Rush County to live in Rushville where the jail was. In fact, in the 1900 census, 
it has the family listed and then three prisoners in the jail right underneath them. They had six children before their marriage fell apart. In September 1900, Sarah left William and filed for divorce, requesting alimony of $3,000, which in today's dollars is $100,000. That was quite the request. Wow. That suit must have been dropped because she filed again in May 1902, alleging cruel treatment by William. There was a court hearing in June with Sarah requesting a restraining order to prevent William from selling or disposing of his property. She was also granted $25 a month, which is $800 today. The divorce was finalized in September that year with Sarah granted custody of their minor children. In 1907, there was a newspaper article in the Indianapolis Star on January 4th praising William who had just been elected Rushville Town Marshal the year prior. What I found most interesting was a photo of him accompanying the article, as well as a description that he was over six feet tall and 200 pounds. So he was a big man. Then on August 29th, 1913, William Price, now 57, was dead. And the jury had to decide if his son murdered him. And this is from the Knightstown Banner on September 5th, 1913. Young man kills father. Herba Price strikes his father, a hard blow causing death. Herba Price, 28 years old of Fort Wayne, Indiana, is held in jail at Rushville, charged with the murder of his father, William L. Price, who died Friday morning shortly after being struck by his son. The two had an argument in the drugstore owned by the elder Price. And on reaching the sidewalk, Price pushed his son into the street. The boy turned on his father and one blow landed on the right side of his neck. William Price fell to the sidewalk, was afterwards picked up and carried into the store and only lived a few moments afterwards. That was quite the punch. Mr. Price and his son, it was stated, were in an argument over family matters. Herba Price with his wife had gone to Rushville on a visit to his mother and to attend the fair. The father, who was a former sheriff of Rush County, had separated from his first wife, the mother of Erba, and had taken another. He had invited his son to his house for dinner, but the boy was loath to make friends with the present wife, and and hot words followed. It meant fight to the boy when his father shoved him into the gutter, at the same time telling him his present wife was as good as his mother. Well, those are fighting words. Yeah. Young Price was placed under arrest and put in jail to await the result of the coroner's inquest as to the exact cause of death. I Yeah, to me, I, his dad deserved a punch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Self-defense. Right. So, Erba ended up being charged with involuntary manslaughter. Now, of course, he had to be charged. This is a former lawman. You can't let that go. But the people in the community stood behind Erba and... 187 of them signed a petition and delivered it to the prosecutor requesting that Erba not serve any time for the involuntary manslaughter. So a deal was struck and Erba changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. This is just September 22nd. So just three weeks later and the judge sentenced him to two to 21 years and then suspended his sentence. Wow. And then two years later I saw where it was just completed. It was wiped clean. So And now for the mysterious death of Thelma Ruth Raider. Thelma Ruth Raider went by the name Ruth, and she was one of the descendants of Hans Adam Raider. 
and he's one of the other brothers. He's not the brother that Tennis descends from. So she's a very distant cousin, sixth cousin. And Ruth was born in April 1920 in Jamesport, Missouri. It's a small town in the north part of the state. And she was the daughter of Charles Rader and Opal Lee. Now, not unlike the story of the Prices, there were problems in this marriage. And Opal left Charles taking their five children, including Ruth, her oldest, in 1933. And they would divorce by October 1934. Then on June 28, 1934, at the tender age of 14, Ruth mysteriously died. Her death certificate lists Landry's paralysis as the cause of death. Of course, I had to look that up because I'm like, I've never heard of that. And they said a synonym for that would be Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. So I don't know enough about that syndrome, but I don't see it as a common cause of death. But they say there could be associated problems that could cause a death hmm. if you have it. But just over a week later, the Livingston County prosecuting attorney filed papers charging her uncle, Henry Rader, brother of her father, Charles, with first degree murder. And this is from the Chillicothe Constitution Tribune on July 7th, 1934. It is alleged by officers that on the night of Saturday, June 23rd, Rader choked and assaulted his niece. The following Tuesday, she was taken violently ill and died two days later. According to the officers, the girl complained of an injury to her throat from the time of the assault until her death. The death occurred at the home of her uncle and aunt, Mr. and Mrs. Earl Hicklin. This is her mother's family. The alleged assault occurred at the girl's home one and a half miles from Lock Springs in Livingston County. Officers of Davies County have also been investigating the case and are working in conjunction with the Livingston County officers. Henry Rader, he's in his 40s. He's a single man, pleaded not guilty to the charges, and his bond was set at $7,500, which is close to $160,000 today. And it was money he didn't have. So I believe he remained in jail until his trial, which took place in November 1934. On November 29th, after spending 45 minutes in deliberations, the jury found Henry not guilty. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I I wonder if better science might have helped (laughs) on that one. I don't know. Uh, It goes back to domestic violence not being in the law books until the 1980s. Oh, that's true. But wait, there's more. I wanted to follow up and see what happened next to Henry and what I found shocked me. On December 24th, so just over a year later, the headline in the Chillicothe Constitution Tribune read, Charles Rader kills his divorced wife. And you just reacted like I did as soon as I saw that headline, Zelda. Wow. And this is a warning for the listeners. You might want to forward ahead if you don't want to listen to some of this because it is not an easy thing to listen to. And then it follows with farmhand, then wounded, three relatives, and Fred bullet into his own head. Charles Rader, a farmhand residing in the extreme northwest part of Livingston County, late Monday shot to death his divorced wife, Opal Lee Rader. Then walked three quarters of a mile to the home of Mrs. Rader's sister, Mrs. Earl Hicklin, where he shot Mrs. Hicklin, her husband, and her brother, Edward Lee. Then walked a distance of one and a half miles to the home of Charles Jordan, where he was employed, stepped upon the front porch of the Jordan home, and sent a bullet crashing through his head, killing himself instantly. Raider used a 3220 rifle, which was found by his side on the porch at the Jordan home. Law enforcement were summoned to the Raider home, 
at seven o'clock, approximately one and a half hours after Mrs. Rader had been shot. Rader, according to the officers, walked into the home of the divorced wife about 5.30 o'clock Monday afternoon, carrying his rifle. He entered the kitchen door and walked into the living room where Mrs. Rader was seated at a table, writing a letter. Their two children, Bobby, five, and Wayne, three, were standing beside their mother at the table, shelling popcorn. Bobby gave the officers the following story of the shooting. Papa entered the room where we were and walked behind my mother, who was seated at a table writing a letter. He sat down in a chair a short distance away. He asked mother where Harry Rader was. Again, that's Charles's brother. She replied, she didn't know. Then you are writing a letter to him. Mother replied, she was not. Then father shot mother in the back of the head. He then sent Wayne and myself to the home of our grandfather, Jim Lee, three quarters of a mile north of our home. From neighbors, the officers then learned that Raider walked to the Hicklin home, entered the home room where Mr. and Mrs. Hicklin and Lee were sitting, and shot the three before they had an opportunity to defend themselves. In the Hicklin home at the time of the shooting was Mrs. Lee, wife of Edward, Raider's eldest son, Harley Raider, 14, and Earl Hicklin, 10-year-old son of Mr. and Mrs. Earl Hicklin, who were not injured. Raider then went to the home of his employer where he killed himself. Raider at one time was a well-to-do and widely known farmer in the northwest part of Livingston County. Wow. Yeah, that's hard. Oh that's, my that's God. really hard. That's hard. As soon as I read that headline and I realized what happened, I, I did the whole, <gasps> and my husband's over in the other room working. He's like, what? I'm like, hold on. I got to process. Wow. It's horrifying. And it comes down to another serial killer in the family. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Just, just I mean, another It's a very form. distant relation, but it's there. Yeah. And just so took another how form. Is, what is the exact relation of this man to Dennis? Sixth cousin, one time removed. Wait, no, no. He would be six. They would be exactly six cousins. He was sixth cousin once removed with the daughter. So they would be six cousins. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, okay, technically at that point, they're kind of not that related, but still it is right. like chilling to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Wow. They don't go by halvesies, do they? They're either like really great pillars of the community or they're multiple murderers. Mm-hmm. Like the other people that were shot did live, mm-hmm. but yeah. But in front of his sons. Mm-hmm. Oh, so his sister-in-law, her husband, and the, they all lived? Yeah. Oh, okay. The only ones who died were him and his wife. Oh, okay. Or ex-wife, I should say. Oh, my God. Those poor kids. And his little, yeah, his little sons had watched that. And I, I imagine that stayed with them for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I, I hate ending on that note, so I have some fast facts from the family that I did not include here. Okay. So we have John Wesley Rader. He was the son of Uncle Bill, that's William Darius Rader, who lived to be 100. We have uh, William Darius had a daughter named Cora, who was a school teacher before she got married. And she married Osdell Keller, who was the superintendent of county schools. Hmm. He didn't stay superintendent for too long. He ended up getting another job selling books for Macmillan Publishing. But when they got married, she became a member of the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and even gave a talk titled, Should the Child of a Drunkard Accept Its Legacy? in 1937. Like, what does that even mean? Exactly. In 1940, her husband 
had to testify as a scandal was rocking St. Louis <gasps> over the school board. Oh, my God. So American Book Company was apparently selling the, the St. Louis schools were buying all of their books like at a unusual rate compared to everybody else. And there was an investigation to see if there were bribes, what was going on here. And so other salesmen had to come and testify, including this Osdell Keller. Wow. And then we do have one weird family connection on Dennis's mother's side, but it's not like a double cousins exactly. So Lyle Cook's great grandfather was John Reed. He was, I think, the father of Robert Reed. Um, you know, he had five children, two of which were Lyle's grandfather, Robert, and the other one was Susanna. Now, Susanna married a Henry Goebel, and then she died at the age of 34. So she was young when she died. Her husband, Henry, then married a Mrs. Hannah Moore Baker, who died like a month or so after they got married. Hmm. Yeah. And then his third wife was Mrs. Anne Brown English. Do you recognize that name? Yes, you mentioned the English family earlier. Yes, she was the widow of Levi V. Tankery. Oh, my God. Lyle's great-grandparents. Wow. So, basically, Henry Goebel was both a step-great-grandfather and a great-granduncle of Lyle's. Oh, my gosh. These people could not stay away from each other. (laughs) (laughs) But Lyle will never meet um, this guy, Henry Goebel, because he died not long after he married Anne in 1852. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I did find a speeding ticket that um, Dennis Rader got in 1977, but that's all I extra (laughs) of all that of all the things he did the speeding tickets would stay (laughs) that was the family tree of dennis lynn raider you have bent my brain denise oh my well that tree bent it i I can't recover from this wow that's like wow did i get it all right bobby because i know you had looked up that stuff i know it's just it's amazing you know looking at this and it's overwhelming. It really is yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. And and I'm like doing, I mean, I, I looked at other people's treats too a little bit, like on Find a Grave usually, especially if they have documentation or something that I believe and that I can verify. But I'm like, wait. So actually I started using um, Find a Grave to see if I saw any Raider Raiders. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, and there there's more of them than I would think. And that's what threw me off the most is you would know that you're probably related if they have the same last name when it's not a common last name like Scott mm-hmm. or Smith or Miller. And those instances, even then, I think I would have like double checked mm-hmm. a little bit that I'm also a genealogy nerd, but there's yeah. that. And at one time there were laws. <laughs> yeah. Bobby, I've got a question. So why did you start researching the genealogy of Dennis Rader? Um, Actually, it was your guys' assignment that put me on this. When he was arrested, I realized, you know, I remember hearing about it, but it was about the time that my children were becoming very active in scouts. So I Mm. became very active (laughs) as their parent. So I didn't look into it too much. So when you guys brought this up to me, I was like, well, that's interesting. So I went to the side of, let's see what happened. And then it was like, okay, let's start looking at what his tree looks like. And when I started pulling this up and it started crossing and crossing again, 
yeah. and crafting even more. <laughs> I was like, wow. And then just how large this family is. I mean, you have oh, yeah. farming communities. And so, you know, like we, like I said earlier, you're, you're giving birth to your labor force because that was the easiest way to work the farms. You know, my, my father's side and even my mother's side, I mean, there's eight children on both of those. And that was just because of the ranches and the farms. Mm-hmm. You know, so I see that and I, I understand that, but it's it's just this huge family. And then they stayed in the same areas for so long that they started intermarrying. You know, nowadays, if I go to a family reunion on my children's dad's side, you know, and I go to those family reunions and all the cousins in there are, are you know, will tease the, the saying of, you know, we come to family reunions to find dates. Well, that was almost what this looked like. It was like, Mm -hmm. wow, you guys stayed in the area for so long that you lost track Mm -hmm. of who your relatives are and how far they go back. And then I wonder if they did lose track. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say they lost it, but they weren't that isolated of a community. They weren't that far from Springfield and they did go into Springfield regularly. Mm -hmm. So it's not, and which is funny because Springfield is in Greene County, Missouri. So they go from Green County, Tennessee to next door neighbors with Green County, Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> but you so said they're, but they're right there. So it's not like they were in a situation like endogamy where you're isolated and that's all you've got. Mm-hmm. They chose to, and maybe it's because they had a certain culture they wanted to maintain. They were also a very Lutheran family. They all, I don't, there's, yeah. Well, and, and you have, have families where brothers from one family marry sisters of the other and then you you know another family down the road you have the same thing and before long you know the lines become convoluted mm-hmm. you know it's, yeah. at what actual degree are we cousins and does it matter anymore mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know if it's just a one cousin or even a, it probably doesn't matter if it's a certain distance but i do start to wonder when it becomes multiple yeah like quadruple and quintuple like history yeah. is that you're like mm, maybe that's not a good choice yeah and well, at least his father was line. wise and married outside of the family yeah i mean and that's just because the line so far back started intermarrying mm-hmm. that they forgot those intermarriages yeah and then they moved to another state and they created another greater town and then it starts happening again mm-hmm. so and that's just, where you get yeah. those yeah but yeah it, it's a, a collapse it's crazy yeah i just <laughs> I have not seen that before. I mean, I've seen, I mean, I have double and triple cousins, mm-hmm. but not, not quite like that. Although I would say that the lesson from this for everybody is maybe double check your, your future spouse's family tree to make sure you're not cousins. doesn't matter where you live, but especially if you're in the same community for a long time with your family, mm-hmm. just check. Yeah. When I did my, it won't hurt. Yeah. When I did my children's tree and, and started noticing that, you know, the, the names had been around the same area, the same towns for so long. And it was, so I started to tell my kids whenever they would date, want to date somebody, it's like, bring me their parents or their grandparents and we'll discuss. We'll run it through the tree. <laughs> <laughs> or, and now, nowadays, just do a DNA test if that's, you're open to it and yeah. just on, on like Ancestry or put it, you know, whatever, but, and see how are you related? I can honestly say I am not related to my husband. I didn't think I was based on his family, but I checked when we got our DNA done. And then there's a tool you can use on this um, website called GenMatch where you can see if your parents are related. Oh, wow. 
And we, we've had rumor hints that we might have a relationship, but I think it's so distant it wouldn't come up on the DNA. But ours said, no, they're not related. So if there is, it's so far back, it's not going to count anyway. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, Denise, I have to say you have outdone yourself. <laughs> well, uh, uh, is the headache worth it then? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's worth I it have to me, interesting. I have no idea who we're doing next because I was so trying to sort all this. Mm-hmm. And, and writing it up was really hard because of all this like had and there's so much i didn't include and that's where i feel bad because there are some interesting stories on some of the lines on the raiders that are not raider people mm-hmm. but i we there's only so much time so mm-hmm. i imagine your wall right now has all these papers stuck to it with these strings going from one side to the other down to Dennis, you know, so you could connect all of these different members i wish actually i have um well, first of all, I have a family tree program that's really great, and it will tell me how what their relationships mm-hmm. are. But then I get out a pad of paper and I'm drawing, yeah. and I'm just like, okay, I got to see this. Yeah, and I was doing that the other night. <laughs> I was like, wow. But that sounds like a really smart idea. Start putting it. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just draw. <laughs> like, okay, I need a, I need to visualize this because I cannot process this. Thank you so much for joining us, Bobby. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this. Yeah, it was great having you. Feel free to join us anytime you want, man. This was fun. Yeah. We'll have you back sometime. Okay. (laughs) I'm so tired now. Oh, my goodness. We did so good. I think we get snaps in a round for everything that we've been doing. And... Everyone have a great week. And as soon as we know who we're covering next, we will let you all know. Yeah. And so you can come back where murder and family meet. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.